Welcome to the Sale Street Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And for more information about our church, visit salestreet.org. James 5, 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Jesus, what words can we say that would describe your majesty? What songs could we sing that could accurately display just how good you are to us? I pray as we we open our eyes and, and try to see another glimpse of who you are and your majesty, open our hearts even when things are difficult and when it's a message that our sinful fleshly hearts don't want to receive that we will give you the power over us to change our lives to have authority over all that we do and all that we are i pray that as my dad brings the message today that you will put words in his mouth and that he will be speaking not of his own thoughts not of his own opinions the words and the message that you have laid on his heart for us. In your wonderful name I pray. Amen. Well, my name is Paul Pettifer. I'm one of the elders here at Sale Street Baptist Church. Um, I am such a grateful person today because we got to spend this week together. Uh, I wasn't here as much, but with World Changers, it was just such a full week. I was in here Thursday night. They had the concert of prayer. The students were praying, and then I, I hung out with our group, which uh, Abigail and Ben were, were leading with as uh, interns this summer. And my heart is just full of that joy. And, and, and in light of that, I'm going to bring us today this passage that Abigail read. We're reading through the book of James, and uh, as my friend Andrew Mattingly, where's Andrew at? Did I miss him? Right here. He named it the feel-good verses of the summer. So the... Uh, Woe to you, rich oppressors, right? It was such a joyful, uplifting passage. I know all of you felt like I did, and we're reading that and studying, like, man, this is just makes you want to sing and dance right here, the woe to you, rich oppressors. But in the big picture, there's an overview that God has for us. Every part of Scripture is beneficial and useful. He, he has celebrated his own name and spread it out, word on a breath on a page. And one of the benefits of preaching uh, through books of the Bible. We call that ex, uh, exegetical preaching. Am I saying it right? I, I lose track of words sometimes. Uh, is that you can't skip the hard passages. So this one would qualify as kind of one that maybe we wouldn't put on the front burner of, uh, hey, let's, let's definitely talk about woe to you rich oppressors uh, this week. Maybe we'll do a six-week series on this passage or something like that. No, but in uh, preaching through the whole book of Bible, the Bible, uh, books of the Bible, we, we go through and we take 
them and we digest them. We ask God, we're here. We're laid bare. What do you have for us in light of your great name in this passage? And so the overview I want to give is that uh, wealth gives people big influence over others. And when they use that to take or to treat unfairly or to steal or to hurt, then they are fighting against God. And in the end, which always comes sooner than expected, they will lose it and regret it forever. So that's the first big response, the woe to big oppressors. And the second one for us Christians, or if you're a Christian, is that we want to use all we have to make his name great, to make much of the name of Jesus. That's the, I asked Justin to sing an older song, uh, the Charlie Hall song, uh, All We Need Is You. I love that song. It just uh, it was, brings me good memories about being together with the crowd. And it just reminds me of, I don't own things. I belong to the king, and he owns them, and he shared them with me to use well. And so the second response is that, that we want to make much of the name of Jesus with all we have, be it much or little. So a real benefit, I told you that. Now we're going to go through uh, this, this passage, right? We're going to walk through it together, and then we're going to have a few takeaways at the end. So he starts in verse 1, Woe, listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. I, I know what you're saying. Feel good verse of the summer, for sure. It's, it's awesome. Uh, to back that up, what did James just put on them? Right? He, he had just told them in, verse, in chapter 4 that Tim spoke about last week. He says, you numbskulls. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Why are you boasting about all these things you're going to do? That's kind of a light paraphrase, if you will. Uh, if it's the Lord's will, we will go here and there and do this and that. That's how he concluded last week's passage, uh, James did. And one commentator that I like, he, he noted that this passage centers on the arrogance and pride involved in planning life without dependence on God. And to denounce the worldliness of the self-centered businessman. And so since I am a businessman, I want to listen to that. He's speaking to me. Do I have something to hear from this? Absolutely. I make plans, and I think my uh, plans in open hands are a good kind of metaphor. If you want to know how, how do we, should we plan on the future? Yes, but it's an open-handed future. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I know the one who does know, and that's my sufficiency. Uh, <clears throat> I want to belong to the big picture. But here in chapter 5, James turns from the presumptuous businessman, that was last week, to the wealthy landowner uh, who uses their holdings for, to get people to work in the fields and not pay them as agreed. That's bad. So in verse 1, that's kind of the prelude, the mute music, if you will. The picture is this rich person James is referring to. They're sitting there all fat and happy, and they are just feeling all the joy. And then wham, it happens to them. They think they're going to be partying for perpetuity. And he says, listen, you rich people, weep and wail. Uh, if you do the, uh, the Greek study on listen, you rich people, weep and wail, I think it's uh, super bad. I think that's the word, uh, the Greek for it, maybe. I'm not, maybe not. I'm not sure. Actually, there is the Greek words next on there if you want to go look it up. I don't know how to pronounce those. But they're bad, right? Listen, you rich people, woe to you, wailing and misery. That's bad. Those are not good things. And then he tells them to listen. I think when the scripture tells us to listen with an exclamation point kind of thing, we should do that. This is the call when people are not listening. They're distracted from God's voice, listening to other things, other sources in this case of security and power. And God's pointing out to us, we do not want to just have our own grip on our own power and security. We want to grip onto the one who knows the future. 
He's referring back to James 4, 9. He told them to grieve, mourn, and wail. So he's repeating something, right? Back then he told them to change their laughter into mourning and their joy into gloom. Why weep and wail? Because the misery that is coming on you in response to a sin or sins not covered in the forgiveness of a Savior, Jesus Christ. There are several places in the Old Testament where it talked about weeping and wailing, and, and they're bad. So I think about Jeremiah 25 where the unrepentant, Israel was told to weep and wail for disaster was coming upon them. And you can read about those disasters. They're equally as encouraging as uh, this one. I mean, the feel-good verse of the summer, James 5. So is James referring to, I thought this was interesting, is James referring to Christians here or to non-Christians? Who's he speaking to? Well, in the letter he says it's to the brothers scattered, the, the, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, the 12 tribes who've heard about Jesus and are called to him. Uh, he addresses them as brothers about 15 times, brothers and sisters, he refers to them. And in this case, he did not begin this passage with that same call to brothers and sisters. Uh, also, in this passage, there is no call to repentance. He's not calling like, hey, you've strayed away from the path. You were following Jesus, and now you've strayed away and come back. He didn't do that here, so we don't know. Uh, but uh, he, he's also mixing in uh, a call to believers and unbelievers uh, did happen in the Old Testament. Um, Jesus had he talked to like woe to you workers of iniquity when he was referring to unbelieving Pharisees who were opposed to them and were leading people astray. And what he's really telling the readers, I think, here, James, is that these folks are 180 degrees out of phase with the things of God. They are God's going this way, and they are the wrong direction, out of phase. And this has got a lot of dissonance, and it's going to create some tension for them. So let's ask a couple more questions. He's referring to rich people. So is wealth good? Is wealth uh, looking only at the earth? We would think it this way. This is how the world thinks, right? That rich folks are happier. Why? Well, because being poor is miserable and being fantastically rich is great. I mean, just think back to the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Who watched that with me? Robin, what's his name? Robin what? Robin what? Leech, there you go, Robin Leech. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. To secure your happiness, you need riches. Persistently riches that are going to persist into the future. You're going to be, uh, 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 you're going to have all this. And when you're rich, you don't have to find. Here, here's another one that I really think is even more sinister. That when you're rich, you can just be so busy consuming and going that you don't even have to think about your life or the meaning of life. Or the future. You can consume, entertain, travel, eat, show off, rinse, and repeat. I don't know if y'all remember a movie called Brewster's Millions. Who remembers that? Richard Pryor in the 80s, Brewster's Millions. There's like two of us in here. He was given a bunch of money and had to consume it all in a weekend and not own anything at the end of the weekend, like $20 million. That's hard to do, even then. But riches can mean or can convince us that our future is bright and happy and luxurious, and James is trying to jar them into a new way of thinking. He's saying that that expectation, that worldly way of thinking, is put, that putting wealth in the place of God, it will eat away your very life, and you yourself will be consumed. So James speaks about the rich before. I think I mentioned that earlier, but he, he talks about, you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him whom you belong? James 2, 6 and 7. Previously, he'd, he'd warned Christians not to show favoritism towards the rich because the allure of wealth is real. It, the, the reason he wrote that because we, we, we're kind of allured by it. We want to be around them. We want to think about them. We want to be close to them. Oh, that's something. 
Now we move to verse 2. He gets to some more meat. That was the preamble. Now we're getting to the meat. He goes, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. This text is so rich with illustration that would be tangible for the people who were there, right? That, that wealth is a security, it's a stronghold. Nope, he says it's rotted. He says it's rotted. Rot means to degrade, to, to compose, decompose, to become unsound and weak. If you walk on a rotted board, if you're on the second floor, it'll fall. If you walk under a rotted limb, it'll fall on you. He says your clothes, what, what do we use clothes for? It's clothes to cover up and look nice. And I'm all for nice clothes. I, I think that's fine. But the goal, he's, he's saying that they were trying to hide the inner weakness with something beautiful. And what happened? Moths came and ate your clothes. Who's anybody had a favorite thing eaten by a moth in your closet? Not none of us. I had a couple of nice things I liked, and they were my favorite tie. I got eaten by a moth. We had uh, clothes were eaten by moths. The stitch of glamour turned to embarrassment. Gold and silver, those are lasting and valuable treasures, right? They hold value across cultures and across generations, and they don't tarnish. I don't know if you notice, but gold doesn't corrode, rust, or tarnish. It can get a little bit of a patina on it, but uh, it's not like that. So James might be making almost a supernatural statement that even the things that the earth can't tear away, God will not let persist. In light of his glory, even gold will tarnish and melt away. <clears throat> Our souls are made for him, and they will not survive glory without a protector, and that's Jesus Christ the Lord. Wealth is a scorecard, and it will be turned around. He says that your wealth will testify against you. Your corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Wealth is going to bite them, the rich oppressors, instead of caress them. We wanted our wealth to caress and please us and help us. It says it will consume you and not provide the light and warmth you perspective. And then the last part of this verse, he says, you've hoarded your wealth in the last days. Hoarded wealth, instead of yielding surplus, it will bring a lack. It will produce lack, not the abundance that was expected. Why is their wealth such a testimony against them? Is wealth an evil thing? Wow, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Let's see if James addresses this question, why their wealth was testifying against them. He says in verse 4, look, the wages you have failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. In case that was confusing, I like the ESV. He, he, he makes it even more clear. He goes, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Justice, God sees, and he hears everything. We're, we're not holding back. The, the rich landowner, they were probably in good graces with the civil authorities. They were the people who had, they knew the judge's ear or the magistrate or whoever it was. And so if you uh, hire people to mow your fields and you just say, I'm going to pay you all half or I'm not going to pay you for the last week or whatever. And they said, that's unfair. We're going to go call authorities. He's like, great, call them. I don't care. They, they had my dinner. The magistrate was at my house last week. He stayed at my villa. <laughs> go call him. What you going to do? They, they, were, they were wealthy, and they had the upper hand, and they laughed. You know, you could just pick your favorite Bond villain's laughter. They laughed at him. You kept back by fraud. God knows. Verse 5, it says, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. Now we're going to meddle a little bit. We're talking about 
hoarding. Uh, he mentioned hoarding earlier, but uh, he uses that. <clears throat> this leads to a great question. Let's skip that part. Well, it leads to a great question. What is wealth and money for? Why do we have it? What we're going to see uh, is what the Lord, the, we're going to look at what the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ said about wealth and money today. And in the context of this passage, we can see that the purpose of money and wealth are clearly not to spend your days in luxury and self-indulgence. Wild spending, right? The lifestyle of the rich and famous. It's always easy to point the finger at someone else. And I, uh, James uses this illustration of you fatten yourselves for the day of slaughter. Now, Sam and Silas and I are in the barbecue business. And when you go to eat uh, proteins, meat, you want it to be marbled. So it, and they send cows to a feedlot. Even if it's a grass-fed cow, they're going to finish it on grain because the grain puts a little more intramuscular marbling. If you go to the section of steaks in the store, you want to get the ribeye that has the little white flecks all in the center of the red. You want it to be fattened up. Fat on the outside of the cow is not quite as tasty. You don't really eat that as much, but the, the intramuscular marbling, that's a sign of a luxurious steak. I'm all for eating those, by the way. We cooked some last night. They were great. But... <clears throat> You, the, the point here that James is making is that they fatten themselves up, and it turns out sin does that. It double-crosses them, and they're the ones that are going to be slaughtered. Sin is like that. It over-promises and under-delivers. Verse 6, he says, You have condemned and murdered the innocent ones who was not opposing you. Now, is that figurative or literal? Well, it's, it seems literal. Uh, we have some examples of innocent ones were her, who were accused and condemned and murdered. We had Jesus Christ crucified on Calvary for the sin of the whole world on Passover Friday, raised to life on Sunday morning, putting to death all of the sin of those who trust in him. He put it in his grave, and he put to shame all the spiritual forces of evil. Then we preached through Acts. We had Stephen. He was martyred in Acts 7 and 8. We had the James, the son of Zebedee, was martyred in verse 12 too, in Acts 12.2. Those are the ones listed in the Bible. We have the author of this book, James, the half-brother of Jesus. And according to a Jewish historian named Josephus, he lists that James was martyred uh, by religious leaders. And three other historical accounts of similar time frames, three other historians referenced James being martyred. So it looks like he was put to death, right? He prophesied what people do who believers and they, they did it to him you can look at fox's book of martyrs if you're interested in that it is a compelling whew, more of the feel-good verse of the summer right there easy reading those who put their trust in riches have their hearts twisted around and it turns out terrible uh, jeff thought this passage was similar to amos 4 where the prophet he just wrote about how uh doom was coming and it was it was not good we didn't want the, you don't want to be on that side so there are four indictments that James levels against the evil rich in this passage. He says, hoarded possessions, didn't pay the workers who mowed your fields, lived in luxury and self-indulgence, and condemned and murdered innocent ones. Well, what should we do with these things? What should we do with this passage? Well, we're going to do these two things. I started out with you at the beginning. I said that, that uh, I think the overview is that wealth gives people who have big influence over others... Wealth can give you big influence over others. And when people use that influence to take, to treat unfairly, to hurt, then they're fighting against God. And in the end, which is always coming sooner than we think, they will lose all that wealth and they will regret it forever.
Uh, it can be easy to think, Paul, I'm, I'm not rich. I understand this doesn't really apply to me. I, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, took the elements of the law. For example, he said, don't kill. And he overlaid it to the heart. Can I apply this principle about what he's saying about the evil rich to the heart? In Matthew 5, Jesus said, You have heard it said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders shall be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He's expanding the commands to cover our heart. We can't just say, I, I, didn't, I, I, I didn't get the letter of that law wrong, but... No, he says, I want you to learn to be like me, to love like me. And whatever wealth or influence we have, right, he's saying, we need to take note. Whatever wealth or influence we have, we need to take note. Uh, we live in a very wealthy country, by the way. Uh, USA is the most wealthy, large nation. And uh, now they always have these kind of worldometers where they'll compare things. It, they're all just a baseline. It doesn't mean it's exactly right, but it's an indicator, right? So at... Uh, GivingWhatWeCan.org, it says that someone making 30000 a year who's a single person in the United States is in the top five of world income, top 5% of world income. That seems surprising to me when I read that. You think that would be a lower percentage, like not in the top 5% for sure, but it is. Uh, $30,000 a year married with two kids, you're in the top 19% of world income. That means 89% of the world makes less than that. It sounds kind of like we're, we're wealthy. If you go to $90,000 a year, married with two kids, we're in the top 4%. So I think we're pretty wealthy by comparison in the United States. So maybe we'll be particularly listening when something comes out about money or, give, or wealth or all that. We just need to pay a little bit more attention because we are pretty blessed. Uh, but what does the United States do with that? I'll just FYI real quick. The USA, uh, if you go to uh, this other website, Balancing Everything and others, the United States gives more of its income than any other country. So 1.4% of gross domestic product to charity, but according to this guy's analysis, the next highest country was Canada, with half that, and there were a handful at a half a percent, and then it dwindled down. So that makes me think about Jesus' words in Luke 12, 48. He says, um, for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. So if we are in a place where there's more abundance, I'm not saying everyone here is rich or you got everything you need. That, that, don't, don't hear me, but uh, that's not the point. The point is, we do have, and we're responsible for what we do have. And he said, uh, we, for, if we have much, we're responsible for much. So the second thing in our, in our analysis, or our look at God's word to us in Matthew 5, or James 5, is that we as Christians, if you're Christian here, you want to make much of Jesus with all that we have. We're going to take whatever we have and make much of him. And James taught that the dispersed Christians, he taught them about the evil rich because he wanted the believers to have faith that's real. That's the theme of this book of James, faith that's real, that can withstand it when someone gives you a brutal or evil challenge or rebuke, uh, just like those who are oppressed by the evil landowners. James showed them that the evil rich can use their wealth for bad, but maybe there's a way to use wealth for good. Um, Money and wealth and riches, are, that word's used a lot in the Bible. It has a lot to say about it. Uh, let's look at what Jesus said in a few places. So let's go to Luke 16. Jesus uh, gives a story. He uses a story as an illustration that there was a, uh, a person who had a, a business. He uh, was a wealthy person. He called his manager in, and the manager was giving a poor job, and he was going to get fired. Because your management's no good. You're going to be fired. The manager quickly hustles out, and he goes, hmm, what am I going to do? I'm too proud to beg. I'm too old to dig ditches. 
I'll tell you what, he calls in people who owed his master money. How many barrels of wheat do you owe my master? 9,000 bushels. All right, quick, make it 5,000. Right here, quick, on your bill. Goes to another guy. How many uh, barrels of olive oil do you owe my master? 500. Quick, make it 400. He goes, well, when I, when I get fired, at least maybe they'll take me in. So this is what Jesus says. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. This is such a surprising passage. It's a story, right? Jesus is meant to give us a counterintuitive kind of rethinking sort of story. Uh, and I don't think we should take this as the bedrock of some new law that says, Jesus says it's great to steal from your boss. He is just teaching that we, what he said at the end, use worldly wealth to gain influence with others and to use that influence for eternal purposes. Let's keep going. Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to rapid fire through four or five places, right? We could spend a, a day on each of these places, but we're going to just go through. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had just talked about giving in secret. Then he talked about... Um, uh, the Lord's model prayer, and we pick it up in verse 19. He talks about treasures in heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And when the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In today's passage, James wrote about rich landowners who hoarded wealth and had self-indulgence and treated the non-rich fraudulently and how it was going to end up for them. Terrible! Then the opposite of what they thought. They trusted their riches for entertainment, security, status, future, and it betrayed them. It hardened their hearts and their need of the, and to the needs of others, and it led them to their own incredible suffering. Contrast that with Jesus' teaching. We just read about the kingdom. Uh, that, that the investments that pay off best are those that are build his heavenly kingdom. It seems like James knew of this sermon of Jesus because he used the moths. And the rust and the clothes, just those precious goods in his own letter that we just read. So James sounds like he knew that verse. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus revealed that the law was meant not just to cover up a specific action, but that our own hearts need to be drawn and the sin in them drawn out because the world is deadly. And we don't want to get... He says, if you get angry with your brother and you call him a fool, that that's akin to the command not to murder. So Jesus, uh, in verse 24, he drew that finer point for us, that no one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you despise the one and be devoted to the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And there is, can be only one most important thing in our life. And Jesus, when he was asked what the greatest commandment, he responded. Uh, so someone asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. In studying this James 5 passage, 
We let, we, we let us guard our hearts against the allure of wealth and luxuries and self-indulgence because the world is beckoning our hearts to want those so much. We, 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 there was a show, a TV show, just calling us to want to have all that self-indulgence. And James laid an indictment against the evil rich that they had hoarded up wealth. Jesus told a parable about this in Luke 12, 13 through 21. The parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you two? He said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against these ki- all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store all my crops. He's fat and happy, right? He told, then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll store my surplus grain there. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Jesus gives us the antidote to this problem, and that's to be rich towards God. In Matthew 10, 8, he said, Freely you have received, freely give. Freely give. It's not an indictment against wealth. It's an indictment against using it. And not being rich towards God. The rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Jesus uh, is in Judea. He's on the other side of Jordan. And some Pharisees are trying to test him. And what he's teaching. And this rich man uh, who happened to be young says to him, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Uh, Keep the commandments. He goes, Which ones? That's kind of picky. Keep the commandments. Which ones? The rich young ruler asks, Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not get false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds real easy, right? Just, just all that. And then the guy, shockingly, he says, all these I've kept since my youth. I bet everyone else kind of stood quietly. Really? That's a big, bold statement. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Jesus was helping this rich young man identify what he had placed ahead of God. He had placed his wealth, his trust, his very large riches. And he didn't even hear. I don't think he even heard the incredible opportunity that Jesus gave him. He issued 12 invitations to follow him to the 12 disciples. And then this one. That's the only ones mentioned in Scripture. And when he heard it, it says in verse 22, he went away very sad because he had great wealth. His wealth kept him away from God, kept him away from the Savior. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, like all of us, are going like, Well, who, who then can be saved? This sounds so hard. And Jesus looked at them and he said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The allure of this world, and in this case, the luxury and security and power of big wealth has a big draw on our hearts. But relying on wealth instead of relying on God is a poison for our hearts. 
And though it be hard, Jesus is telling us that nothing is impossible with God. How does God keep us at bay of the alluring nature of trusting in God? I mean, trusting in money. Good question. Let's keep digging real quick. Mark 14, Jesus is in the temple with his disciples, and he brought them and sat them down to see the place where people were giving their money. So we have the, the offering buckets here and here, or you can give online, you can give on the app. So he sat his disciples down in front of the place they were giving, and they just watched the goings on. You've seen, we put pictures of the temple. It's a big old place. Mark 14, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting in their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in very large amounts, right? Were they sincere? Were they doing it for a show? We don't know. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins. Only worth a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you that this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. We are responsible for what we have. She only had a little, and she, she did not have to give what they gave. She had a little. And our heart's inclination to... We've got to put God as the preeminent one that our heart's inclined to in order to see wealth clearly, see money clearly, see our lives clearly. And giving to God is a bulwark against the temptation to put wealth ahead of God. If we can give until it hurts a little, we realize that this stuff doesn't own us. We realize that God, that whom we are honoring with our whole life, including our money, we see that he is trustworthy with our faith and with our faithfulness. We see that he owns us, and that is very good for us. Paul tells the church in Corinth, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the gospel. Paul uses the language here that's so fitting for us today, that we were bought at a price. We were lost separated from God and responsible to pay for our own sin. But one way to express sin is that when we, we told God, no, you are not the boss of me. I can handle my own things on my own. And that price to be paid when we do that to God is our life. That's what it costs. Death, sin, and rebellion kill. And how does God, what does God do for people who cannot do it for themselves? He steps in. He intervenes. Ephesians 4 says, But God, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, even though we were dead in sins and transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. God loves us. He is giving God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But do not miss it. Money is a big temptation. Paul goes over this when he writes to the, his disciple Timothy. And while, while they're there, he was, he was writing Timothy because Timothy had fully taken up the mantle of, of leading the church that Paul had. He was, Paul empowered and trained disciple makers. Timothy was his disciple, and now Timothy is repeating that in the church. Paul had set him there, and he tells Timothy, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves 
with many griefs, wandered from the faith, and pierced themselves. The beckoning of money and wealth to have our minds' attention and our hearts of devotion is real. How do we overcome this? Well, we do it with Jesus. Just like every other temptation, every other idol that calls us to say, put me first, put me ahead of God, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. There was a man who was possessed. His, his daughter was, or son was possessed by an evil spirit. And uh, it, would, it, would, it wouldn't let him speak. It threw him to the ground. He was helpless. And in desperation, he brought the boy to Jesus. And he brought him to his disciples first. And they couldn't help him. And so the man heard of Jesus growing a claim that he was a worker of miracles, that God's hand was on him. And he presents the boy to Jesus and asks him, Jesus asks, how long has the boy been like this? And he goes, since he was, since he was a child. Jesus, by the way, he already knew how long it had been. He's doing that for our benefit so we would know that this wasn't, this wasn't some brand new thing. Yesterday he felt like this and now he's faking. No, no, no. From childhood, it has often thrown him into the fire of water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the man in desperation, his kid is dying. He goes, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And in light of every temptation that we look at and we go, that seems really hard. The allure of wealth, we're in a wealthy place. And, you know, it's allure, it's allure. We, want, we don't know. And, and I'm, not, I'm not commanding us all to go give away all your stuff and be broke and be destitute, right? That's not it. He says, what do you do with what you have? Be a blessing to others. Be rich towards God. And when we get to the moments where our hearts get tugged and we want to go someplace that, that seems luxurious and self-indulgent and tight to God, stingy towards the people of God and the things that God's doing, he says, we, we fall on our knees just like that man says, I believe, Lord Jesus Christ. Help me overcome my unbelief. Our takeaways, the band can come up. I'm almost done. First one is that judgment is coming for those who use their power and wealth to oppress others. And Jesus is calling right now for repentance and faith. Maybe James was writing to people who, you know, we kind of, they're past the point or they're historical. But right now, if we're, if we're in that spot where wealth's got number one in my life, I, but right now is the time to repent. Right now. Not when I finish the talk. Not when the music starts. Right now, anytime we are sinning and we are, you know, God convicts us, we turn away from that thing. That thing's bad for you. It'll corrode. It'll harm you. It's not going to pay off like you thought. Turn away. That's called repentance, to turn around. Second takeaway is that the gospel changes how we view money. The gospel changes how we view money. Use your worldly riches to gain influence. And use that influence for God's kingdom. Hanging out with wealthy people, it can just feel so fantastic. It's like another level of, wow. Remember the lifestyle of the rich and famous, you know? It just feels, I mean, it can be alluring. It can want it, right? We, we kind of all want to be on the red carpet. Like Johnny and Amber, right? Who, who's, who's on Team Johnny? Who's on Team Amber? Look how great they look. It looks so, everyone's watching them. All eyes are on them, top of the world. Wealth and beauty. And, maybe they're nice people. I don't know them. I, mean, I know them just like you know them. But now, I mean, their life seems a little less glamorous now, right? The wealth and allure of it just didn't turn out like they wanted. And I'm not throwing bombs on them, but 
wanting what they have is not going to pay off for me or you. Third thing that ties and giving to the poor help rid our hearts of our attachments to wealth. That was Sam's contribution this week. He reminded me, make sure we talk about that these, these, these rhythms that God's put in place, his obediences, help train our hearts to love him and trust him more. And that's so beautiful. One, one great thing about giving, uh, you can look at your calendar and your checkbook and you'll know what's actually happening. I'll know what's actually happening in my life this week. Not theoretically what I pose is true, but what I'm practicing today. It's just, it's measurable. It's not given to self-deception. And I'm given to self-deception, but you don't have to raise your hand. But if you... You can tell yourself, like, I can argue a great argument to myself about how I'm always right. Ask April. She'll, she might be able to testify about that. It's measurable. And I think uh, another friend of mine kind of said, you know, if you, if you give until it hurts a little bit, that's how you know that we're in the midst of it. Just like the widow's might, right? She gave what she had. She had two tiny coins, and that's what she gave. Fourth takeaway with the stock market plum- plummeting and worried about inflation or recession we can be given to depression i mean we can just get into a real worry centered funk and i looked at my stuff this week our companies i mean there's there's trouble for sure i'm not putting that down i mean philip and i talk you know yes but we need to not depend on riches depending on riches The sinful draw of wealth as a cure, as an all-powerful thing. It's it's abundance is going to... No, no, no. If you do that, it leads to what these guys did. They they cheated poor people who worked their fields because they were so hooked on it, hooked on the juice. No, no. Money is a dead God and cannot save. It cannot give life, and it cannot give it more abundantly. That's what Jesus does. He gives life gives it to the full. Fifthly, what price and lastly, what price is God willing to pay? Just about money, right? Commerce. What price was God willing to pay for our hearts to be connected with the only one that'll save us from every sin, not just sin of greed or wealth, self-indulgence. Was he was willing to pay his son, his perfect son. He was willing to let all our wretched yuck be poured out on him. He was separated from God for the first time and only time in all of time immemorial. That's the price he was willing to pay so that we wouldn't have to spend fishing for some other God that would try to pay off and it wouldn't work. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Lord Jesus, I thank you, Lord, that there is no one else sufficient, no other power sufficient, no other possession or security sufficient to carry the weight of my formerly dead soul out of darkness and into 
eternal life into light immemorial. Only you could do that. Praise is your name. Praise belongs to your name. And I pray today for every person in the sound of my voice, online, in our church, out of our church, that their lives would hear your call to be the Savior rescues us out of every trouble that brings our souls from death to life. I pray for anyone today who doesn't know you that um, in the wrong direction. I pray for anyone who doesn't know you that they would hear your call to love them, to be loved by you, and to respond back in Jesus. And I ask you, Lord, to show up today for any of us who have put our trust in stuff, too much trust in stuff, to say no to that and say yes to Jesus, to, to walk towards you, you're inclining towards us, and we want to incline towards you today. Repentance is a beautiful place of discipleship, so today we repent of any, uh, we want to repent of any, we want you to help us want to repent from any obstruction that keeps our hearts away from you. Oh Lord, as we stand and sing, let us draw near to you as you've already drawn near to us. In Jesus' name.